I'll try it again. Good morning. <clears throat> well, as we get started today, <clears throat> I want to ask you, have you ever seen that uh, Geico insurance commercial that is designed to look like a clip from a horror movie? It starts out uh, with these four teenagers running frantically through the woods. Somebody obviously is chasing them, and they, they, they stumble and make their way until they finally come out, and they see this really creepy old house. And they stop, and they look, and one of them says, let's hide in the attic. Another one says, no, in the basement. Third one turns around and looks behind them, and right there is a car that's running. It's already on, the lights and everything, and, and says, why can't we get in the running car? The fourth and final teenager looks shocked and says, are you crazy? No, let's go hide behind all the chainsaws. And they run into this shed or this garage, and there's dozens of chainsaws there. And, and as they crouch down and are looking around, you see the bad guy, and he's in the corner of the screen. And, and the, the, the camera turns, and he pulls his creepy mask off, and he rolls his eyes. And the narrator says... If you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. That's what you do. And of course, the commercial is kind of funny because it's obvious what the wrong choice and the right choice really is. And I think the commercial also, it reveals an assumption that we make about ourselves. And that assumption is that we will make the right decisions if we have all the facts. We're always gonna just make the right decisions. But all too often, we don't, do we? We don't do that. We don't make the right decisions. Our, our 2023 New Year's series is called I'm Blessed. And we're talking about God's blessing and how we can find it, how we can live in it. And you would think at first thought that living a blessed life would be pretty straightforward, right? That it would be pretty obvious because everyone wants to be blessed. Everyone wants to be happy, why not just live that blessed life? Just make the right decisions. But obviously, most people don't because clearly most people are not happy. Most people are not truly blessed. And what we're talking about today is how to live the blessed life. And we're gonna be studying together one of my favorite Bible passages, which is Psalm 1. And so you wanna get your Bible open there. Psalm 1 is what scholars call a wisdom psalm. And that simply means that its purpose is to teach us the best way to live. Now, we don't know who wrote it, but most uh, believe that it was composed intentionally uh, as an introduction to the entire book of Psalms uh, to introduce what is coming, what is to follow. And Psalm 1 is all about the blessed life. I want you to listen to Psalm 1, listen to the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. And this is the word of the Lord. 
And all God's people say, amen. Now, Psalm 1 addresses what is really one of the most important questions that every single person deals with every day. And it's the question, how can I be happy? And everyone wants to be happy. I think the 17th century French philosopher, Blaise Pascal, who was a devout Christian, put it probably more profoundly than anyone I've ever heard. He said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. See, we all wanna be happy, every single one of us, and we always choose what we think will make us happy. The problem is we don't always know what will make us happy. The problem is in our fallenness and in our sinfulness, we don't know and so we often choose things that don't make us happy even though we we think they will. Now Psalm 1 tells us that happiness, true happiness, never just happens. It always flows out of living a certain way and it is what the psalmist calls the way of blessing. Did anyone notice that Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed and it ends with the word perish? See, the psalmist is telling us there are two ways to live. There is a way to live that leads to blessing and favor in life, and there is also a way to live that leads to death. See, the blessed life comes from the choices that we make as we follow God. And there are three choices that I think the psalmist highlights for us in this psalm, choices that you and I can make every day and therefore live the blessed life. And here they are. You can write this first one down. Choice number one, just say no to the world's ways. Now, this is interesting because I think the psalmist begins in a very counterintuitive way for us. He begins by saying, the blessed life begins with a no. He says, you will never know, never know God's blessing apart from saying no to the world. Look at verse one again. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way or the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Now, the, the very first word of this psalm is really the point, this word blessed, and we need to be clear on, on what it means. This word means happy, and some translations uh, use that word, but it is not a happiness based on circumstances. It's not a happiness that just happens. We often use the word happy in a way that says we're happy when what we want to happen happens, and we're not happy when what we don't want to happen, it happens. So that's what happiness means. But the psalmist is talking about something far deeper than this, far deeper than a, a happiness that just happens. The idea behind this word is, is God's approval or God's favor. And so you might say when we are living a blessed life, it's a, it's a result of God expressing his approval of us. I, I think that this raises a fundamental question about experiencing true happiness, do you want God's approval more than anything else? Have you ever thought about where you most want approval? Uh, whose approval 
competes with God's approval in your life. And every one of us has a competitor. Maybe it's your parents' approval. Maybe it's your spouse, or maybe it's your kids. For some of it's your employer. Maybe for you, it's kind of the culture and you want to be approved of by the people in the culture. The point is, as long as we are looking for the approval or the blessing of anyone or anything else, we're gonna miss out on, on living the blessed life, walking in God's blessing. And in this verse, the psalmist tells us three things that we must choose to say no to to live the blessed life. Um, first of all, he says, we must choose to say no to the world's advice. No to the world's advice. Blessed, he writes, is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So he says, don't listen to them. Don't take their advice on how to be happy. Have you ever thought about that? Are all those people who are out there in your life, around your life, telling you how to be happy, are all those people actually happy? Do they know true joy, true blessing, peace, true fulfillment? And if they don't, then why are you listening to them? Why should they tell you how to live? Have you ever thought about this? We, we do this all the time. Every one of us does it. If you say you don't, you're just living in denial. But we see other people. Sometimes they're famous people. Sometimes they're beautiful people or wealthy people or maybe they're powerful people and they, they tell us how to live and we think that if we could just be like them, if we could just have what they have, then we would be happy. But we know, don't we? We, we know that so often the reality is those people who have the things we think will make us happy, they're not happy, right? Are you with me on here? this? I just wanna make sure, okay? You know what I'm talking about. We look for people, at people who have things we think we, have, we should have to be happy. They have those things, but they're not happy. So why are we following their advice? Why are we doing the things that they say? And so whenever you find yourself thinking, well, I need this, or I, I want this, or I have to have this, because we, we, we think that it will make us happy, we need to ask ourselves the question, am I listening here to the counsel of the wicked? Now, I need to pause here and make sure you understand what the psalmist means when he uses this word wicked. Uh, he's not using it probably the way most of us use it. He's not talking about serial killers or sex traffickers. He's not talking about pornographers or pedophiles. He's not talking about genocidal dictators or, or, or abusive parents. You see, many of the people who are what the Bible calls wicked are people you wouldn't mind living next door to. Outwardly, they might be decent, what we would call good people. Maybe they're, they're kind. What ultimately defines a wicked person biblically is that they have no place for God in their lives. Wickedness, according to the Bible, is about being self-centered rather than God-centered, about following self rather than following God. And so it doesn't matter if, if you pay your taxes and you hold down a job or you, you coach your kid's baseball team. If you're not living for God, as far as the Bible concerns, you're wicked. In fact, it's interesting to note the root of this Hebrew word is 
unrest or restlessness. People without God in their lives are restless. They do not know true happiness or blessing. They're, they're always searching, always reaching for what's just beyond their grasp, trying to find what's missing in their lives. And again, I wanna say, if that's the case, then why should we look to them for advice for how to be happy? Now, this does not mean that you don't get to know people who are in this place. It doesn't mean that you don't love them. It doesn't mean that you don't seek to establish friendships with them. It does not mean that you don't seek to share the Lord with them. It doesn't mean that you look down on them. The Bible says we are to love our neighbors. And we need to be reminded in this that the only blessing that we know in our lives is by the grace of God. Do you understand that blessing by its very nature is not something you earn? Blessing is something that is bestowed. It's given from a greater to a lesser. It's something that's just given as a gift. And so our, our blessing in our lives comes from the goodness of God, not our own goodness. This just means that you don't follow their way of thinking. Now, thinking always leads to action, and the psalmist ties these two together. Second, he says, we must say no to the world's actions, Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners. Now, this word sinner just means someone who is in rebellion against God. In other words, it's their lifestyle. They don't obey God in their life. And again, you can be in rebellion against God and you can be a, a good neighbor. What the psalmist is saying here simply is if you wanna be truly happy, truly blessed, then make sure you're not following the lifestyle of people who are in rebellion against God. Third, he says, we must say no to the world's attitudes. Blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of mockers. Now, did anyone catch the progression that's going on in these three phrases? It goes from walking to standing, you stop, to sitting, you sit down. The, the psalmist here is describing an increasing identification with the world. It's like if you take the world's advice, you'll begin to act like the world. And if you act like the world, soon you'll have the world's attitude. Sitting is something that refers to like full identification with the world. Sitting is what you do when you settle down. You, you rest when you sit. You spend time in the place where you sit. So this person is sitting, not standing. He's fully involved with mockers. That means he shares their attitudes. This word for mockers, it refers to people who laugh at God, people who ridicule the things of God. And so the psalmist is saying, if you wanna be truly happy, then you need to make sure you distance yourself completely from those who by their attitudes and actions and advice that they mock the things of God. Now, maybe you're listening to this and maybe it just sounds so obvious. You wonder why, why I'm bothering to even talk about it. But I wanna be really clear on this. So many times, it is not at all obvious. And we need to be reminded that Satan, who is our enemy, is far, far more intelligent than any of us. And he is so clever and he finds all kinds of schemes to distract us and to derail us from God's blessing in our lives. He, he's often so subtle that if we're not paying attention, we won't see it. 
In fact, you know, some of us, some of us, we try to find happiness in material things. We spend all kinds of money on, on bigger houses or more expensive cars, and we say that we're doing it for the kids. Really. Happens all the time. So often, I think what happens is that we are drawn into the world's ways so slowly over a long period of time that the steps that we are taking, they're, they're almost imperceptible. We don't even realize what we're doing, and yet we're being influenced by the ways of the world. It's tens of thousands of Instagram photos where beauty and pleasure and luxury and materialism are exalted and God is ignored. It's God knows how many hours of watching shows on Netflix and Hulu and Prime Video that that tell these stories where God is mocked and Christians are always stupid and narrow-minded and the intelligent people who live the ways that the world lives, they're the, the coolest and they're the happiest. And we listen to this and we take it in and we don't even realize it. You know, I'm confident that some of us right here, right now, We've decided to set aside God's views on marriage and creation and gender, and the reason is the mocking that is going on all around us. I think sometimes we don't see what's happening to us because it's kind of just in the cultural air that we all breathe. You know, we live today in what historians and, and philosophers call a, a secular age, which, which simply means that most people think that this world that we can see and touch and taste and smell, that's all that there is, just material. They, they think you live once and then you die and then you're worm food. That's it, nothing more. And there are many people who have bought into this kind of thinking and think that that secular way of looking at things is kind of the default de facto mode of existence and then somebody comes along and puts religious belief on top of that in contrast. But I wanna say to you that secular thinking is a faith. It is a belief system of its own. Secular people believe that the natural universe, material things we can touch and taste and see and smell, that that's all that there is. They can't prove that's all that there is. It is a faith statement. And so the logical conclusion of of secular thinking is that in the end, all that matters really is, is me. You know, that's where almost all people land naturally. It's the result of our sinful way of seeing the world. And so we just live in this culture where pretty much everyone thinks the purpose of life is me. Scholars who study history and culture today have labeled the way of thinking and living that is so common among us uh, expressive individualism. And we don't really have time to explore this in depth, but I just wanna say to you that this uh, concept, expressive individualism, is everywhere. It's actually in here. It's actually inside all of us, even in me to some extent. It's kind of this air that we breathe. We don't even realize it. I mean, if you've ever in your life ever said or, or thought or believed, you know, you gotta be true to yourself or you do you or find yourself or you gotta follow your heart, then, then you've been influenced, you, you've been shaped by expressive individualism. Sometimes we say, you know, to someone, you be you, kind of ironically, but most people actually do think that is the central purpose of life. 
You know, our world says that human beings are inherently good, and many of us believe that. Our world says that the highest good in life is individual freedom and and self-expression. Many of us believe that. Our world says that traditions and religions that restrict individual freedom and self-expression, they must be reshaped and deconstructed, even maybe destroyed. Our world says the most important value is tolerance for everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. And we have all been impacted by this thinking. It's kind of the ocean that we swim in. In fact, as a pastor, I've come to experience many times that many of us who come to church, we've redefined church according to expressive individualism. You know, we, we think that what happens at church is supposed to be about me, about fixing my life's problems, about helping me on my life's journey, making my life better. And I hope, I hope that you can see as you hear briefly about this, how this kind of thinking would make it hard for you to say no to the world's way. See, I, I just introduced this kind of to alert us to some of the ways that the world can seek to draw us away from God's way, some of the ways that can keep us from experiencing true happiness and true blessing. There's a lot more that we can say about this, but I wanna to give you two prayers that I would encourage you to regularly pray as you think through how the world's ways might impact you and how you can say no to them. And, and the point of these prayers is not to say the words, but to express the thoughts in them. I want to put them on the screen. Uh, you need to pray in your life regularly. God, am I saying yes to the world's ways? You need to pray. God, help me, help me to say no and seek God's help to discern any way that the world is impacting and infiltrating your thinking because it will keep you from living the blessed life. Choice number two, practice meditation on God's way. So there's two ways. We need to avoid the world's way, but we need to focus our lives on God's way. And it kind of works like this. As we say no to the world's way, we are saying yes to God's way. And the way we learn God's way is in God's word. In other words, you, you separate yourself from the world's ways. You saturate yourself in God's word. How do we do that? Well, the psalmist tells us we do that by meditating, meditating on God's word. That's what he's talking about in verses two and three. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Now don't miss the the contrast the psalmist is making. He's, He's comparing, notice this, someone who walks and stands and sits with someone who delights. That's the comparison. And I think what he's doing is pointing this out. No one goes the world's way no one is wicked. No one, no one sins or mocks out of duty. You don't do those things out of duty. Why do people do those things? Well, they want to. They like it. It feels good to do those things. It brings them pleasure and delight. That's why they do it. That's why we do it. And so what he's doing is he's contrasting 
the delight the world has in the world's ways with this other delight. And what this means, first of all, is that we are to find pleasure in God's word. We're here to find pleasure in God's word. Do you think of interacting with God's word in these terms? That's what the psalmist is saying. We are to delight in God's law. Law is the word Torah, and it, it means literally direction or instruction. It originally referred to the first five books, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's a word that can refer to either a single command from God, or it can refer, as it does here, to Scripture as a whole. I want you to underline that word delight. It's telling us here that, that true happiness does not come from us just reading our Bible because the pastor told us to. It, it doesn't just come from following some plan and checking off some boxes. It's not fundamentally about duty. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Delight means to desire something. Delight means to place value on something. We know what that means, right? To delight in something. What do you delight in? The best example for me personally that comes to my mind right now is grandchildren, right? Grandchildren. Um, if you weren't here last week, I, I shared with you that we, on January 5th, had our sixth grandchild. His name is Benjamin. He arrived uh, all nine pounds and 12 ounces of him. And if you were here la- weren't here last week, you didn't see the pictures. And if you were here last week, you get to see more pictures, okay? And there he is. Um, looks kind of hungry right there. He's pretty much hungry all the time, I think. And here's another picture of him. Um, he's sleeping. Isn't he cute? Isn't he cute? Um, I sometimes say that one of my jobs as a papa is to embarrass my wife by cornering random people, you know, and showing them pictures of our grandkids. I, I have no shame at all and um, just do not care. If you don't like it, that's your problem, not my problem at all. Why? Why? Because I delight in my grandchildren, Right? And that's what the psalmist is talking about here. That's what he is telling us here. We need to find delight in the word of God. I like this short little quote from Warren Wearsby. He says, whatever delights us, directs us. And that is true about the word of God. And that is true about the world's ways. Whatever delights us, directs us. So what brings you the most delight? Do you know? What gets you excited and moves your heart? Do you know? I mean, how you answer those questions reveal what's most important to you. And what the psalmist is saying is the next thing. He says we should, we should not just find pleasure with God's word. We should fill our minds with God's word. You see, delight always leads to meditation on his law he meditates day and night. He delights in the law, and because of his delight, he meditates day and night. And here's the thing I hope you understand. We naturally delight, or we naturally think on whatever delights us. Our, our minds just go there. We don't have to work at it. In fact, if you really delight in something, sometimes we might call it, if you go overboard, kind of an obsession, right? We, we just meditate on those things that matter to us. So what's meditation? Literally, uh, the word meditation in Hebrew means to mutter or to, to speak under, you know, in low tones. It's kind of the person is talking to themselves because they're pondering something. 
And so you might say meditating on the word of God day and night means you speak the word of God to yourself day and night and, and, and you speak to yourself about the word of God day and night. Or you could also talk about this. The word meditate sometimes is used for ruminate, which is the word that we use for a cow uh, chewing its cud. You ever see a cow doing that? We're not agricultural people, and so maybe you don't know this, but maybe you've heard about it before. Cows have four stomachs. And so when they're grazing, you know, chewing hay or grass or whatever it is they're eating, they, they swallow what they've chewed, and it goes down to stomach number one. And it stays down there for a while, uh, gets digested some, and then they erp it back up uh, with enhanced flavor. I don't know. Um, and then they chew a little more and it goes down to stomach number two and the process gets repeated four times and you say, that sounds gross, but that's how we get ice cream, so relax. <laughs> that's what ruminate is, right? You just take a thought and you chew on it a little bit and then you send it down to that subconscious level where your mind kind of works on it and processes a while. Then you bring it back consciously again and think on it some more. Send it down again over and over and over. You are applying your mind to God and his beauty and his glory and his majesty and his power. You ponder his amazing deeds. You marvel at his grace. Now, we can get confused about meditation because what is around us a lot of the time with mindfulness and all kinds of stuff like this is you're supposed to empty your mind, but biblically, the meditation is never about emptying your mind. Biblically, meditation is always about filling your mind with the word of God. And that's why we need to interact with the word of God regularly. And I would say to you, we need the word of God daily. Now, I don't wanna to lay on anyone some kind of legalistic burden. I don't want you to feel guilty because you didn't read God's word yesterday. I do want you to get into God's word regularly. I do want you to take it in. It's like your spiritual food, right? We need it just like we need to eat physically. We need spiritual food. And so we should be taking God's word in all the time so that we can think on it and, and meditate on it. And I'll also add to that, we need to memorize God's word. Again, not as a legalistic burden, but because God's word delights us, we want to have it with us all the time. Now, we, we have uh, out always in our lobby, we have uh, reading plans. They're there now. If you would like a plan, if that helps you, to, to stay in God's word regularly, but it's more than just checking boxes. It's about delight. We need to delight in the word of God. And that leads to the third thing I wanna say, and that is to fight for delight in God's word. You know, true blessing um, requires us to choose. I said earlier, true blessing never happens by accident. There's, there's an intentionality to it. Look at verse three. It says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. Notice it says the tree is planted. See, it's not a tree that just grew there because a, a seed like, you know, blew in on the wind. Someone planted it. And, and this phrase, streams of water, that makes it even more clear. Because the Hebrew word 
that's here indicates an image we're familiar with out here uh, where the church is. It's, it's talking about irrigation canals. In other words, what he's describing here is someone plants a tree right by an irrigation canal, right by the place where the tree is going to receive a steady stream of water. So I just wanna ask you, are you intentional in your intake of the word of God? Now, in this context in Psalm 1, the psalmist, he, he would have been thinking of the law of Moses, the law uh, that God had given them that told them who God is and here's how you please God, here's how you, you know God. And yet for us, the beautiful thing is, for us on the other side of the cross, we have all of the scriptures to look back to, not just the Old but the New Testament. And so for us as Christ followers, this delighting in the law of the Lord is delighting in the entirety of the word of God. And what it means is if you delight in God's word, you're gonna read it and you're gonna study it and you're gonna meditate on it and you're gonna find out as you do that this book is about a person. This book, the law of the Lord, the word of God, what I'm talking about is ultimately about Jesus. Do you understand that? From beginning to end, the word of God points to the God-man Jesus who, by the way, said that he had come to fulfill the law. Do you remember that? And so a, a call to delight in the law of the Lord is a call to delight in the fulfillment of the law, which is Jesus. It's delighting in the reality that God sent his only son into our sin-sick, broken world to show us the Father. God sent his son to die for our sins, to rise again from the grave, to defeat death, and to give to us the hope and the promise of, of eternal life. To delight in God's word is to delight in the hope that one day all sickness will be healed, all suffering will cease, and all evildoers will be brought to justice. Do you see? That's what we're delighting in. And this is where we find our happiness. This is where we find blessing, delighting in Jesus, who, by the way, is the only fully and truly forever happy person. Do you know that? See, if the truly happy, truly blessed man is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, then Jesus is the only one who ever did that in fullness because he never sinned. Jesus is the only person who is eternally, truly happy. And Jesus came to die, to give us life so that the wicked, the sinner, and the mocker might find blessedness, happiness in him. Do you understand? Do you see delighting in God's word leads to blessing? And this is what God wants for you. This is what God wants for me. I wanna give you a statement that I, I want you to take with you and think about. I hope it'll help you contrast these two things that we've been talking about. It's this, the only hope against the pleasures of this world is the pleasures of the word. The only hope that you have against the pleasures of the world is the pleasures of the word. And so just like the pleasures of the world are awakened by looking at them and pondering and thinking on them, so the pleasures of the word are awakened. They are awakened in our souls as we follow Christ when we read the word 
and we ponder the word. We stay in the word long enough to delight us and to direct us in our lives. Here's the third thing I wanna give you. The third way we can live a blessed life is to always keep eternity in view. Always to keep eternity in view. So the psalmist has been telling us the the way to walk, the way to live, and now he shows us in the second half of the psalm the alternative. And listen again to verses four through six. He writes, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, there's a very stark contrast here. You, you hear it, you see it, where, where this blessed person is, is fruitful and stable in season, out of season, whatever he does prospers. The wicked person is like chaff, chaff that the wind just blows away. Chaff is that, that husk on the outside of the, the kernel of wheat, and it's worthless. You can't even use it to feed animals. But why are the wicked like this? Why is he using this description and again, it's not because they're all evil and hateful. It's, it's not because ungodly people never do anything kind to anyone else. It's not because they don't ever invent great things or write great novels or paint great paintings or act in incredible movies or express their, their God-given creativity in a thousand other ways. See, wicked people have done all of these things and more. The basis for the judgment of the psalmist on their life's worth is that everything they do is temporary. It just won't last. It's not about God, therefore it's not gonna last. When they're dead, it's gone. When they're dead, it's over. And you see, the Bible has a very different perspective. You know, if, if we are future-oriented people, we think down the road. Some of you think down the road, 10 or 20 years about your life. You've got long-term plans. If you're you know, really a forward-thinking, future-oriented person, maybe you're planning for retirement 30 years before it happens. Most of us don't do that. You know, Most of us don't live more than a, a few weeks or months ahead. But I want you to see something. The Bible would tell us that 30 years, even 30 years is not enough. The Bible would say, you need to look ahead 30 million years. You need to look at life from the perspective of eternity because that is when you see reality in truth. And you see, that is the ultimate problem with following the world, walking the world's ways. The world's way has no roots. It never lasts. Ultimately, it produces nothing. And what a tragedy for people to spend their whole life on earth as chaff and as far as eternal things are concerned, they don't ever amount to anything. Verse five reminds us of a sober reality that there is a future judgment. This is another reality the world mocks. People say there is no judgment. Some people, I don't know, maybe someone here today thinks that judgment is just something that that preachers throw out there to scare people and get them to do stuff. But just thinking that and just saying that doesn't make it true. God's word tells us again and again that judgment is coming. God's word tells us again and again that the only hope in the face of judgment, the only hope any of us has is Jesus. 
we will only survive judgment because of his death and life. And so when verse five says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, it means they won't be able to endure the judgment. When the books of judgment, the books of judgment are open, those individuals who rejected God in this life are gonna be flung to their knees by the realization of their sins and by the truth of God's word and by the glory of God's son. And in a horrifying moment, they will discover that everything they oriented their lives around and trusted in failed them and failed them for eternity. See, when we delight, by contrast, in God and his word, when we live for God, live for his word, when we walk in his ways, then we will experience what verse six says. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That word watches in verse six literally means no, it's often translate, translated that way. It tells us that God knows his people intimately because he's watching over us. He's caring for us. It's actually the Hebrew word yada, which is, which is used in other contexts for the deepest human intimacy, a husband and a wife knowing each other sexually. This is the kind of watching, the personal watching that God has over our lives. He knows everything about us. 2 Timothy 2.19 says the Lord knows those who are his. Jesus says in John 10.14, I know my sheep. And you can know joy and blessedness in your life by understanding that right now God is watching over you and God will watch over you every day and every night of your life. He will watch over you as you delight in his word, as you walk in his blessing until that day that he calls you home finally and forever free. Do you see it? Do you understand? This is all about fundamentally it comes to this. God loves us. That's what he, he wants, why he wants blessedness for us. God wants for us to live blessed lives because he loves us and he knows because he made us he knows how we are designed. He knows that blessedness, that happiness only happens when we live the way he designed us to live, when we live in a relationship with him through his son, Jesus, in alignment with the reality he has created for with his truth, with his person, through his grace, because of his love. How do you live a blessed life? Well, you live the way God tells you to live. And that is the happiest way. That is the most delightful way. That is the most blessed way to live. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then are you choosing to orient your life around that reality? Let's say no to the ways of the world. Let's say yes to God in his ways, which are good and for our good. Let's delight in his word. God loves you and wants you to be blessed. If you follow him and do what he says, that's where you'll find true blessing. This is God's word for us today, Southwinds. His word for us. And all God's people say, amen. amen. Would you bow your heads? We're going to 
celebrate the Lord's Supper um, together in just a few moments. And as we prepare our hearts, Father, we just wanna thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, thank you for how you teach us, how you guide us, Lord, how you encourage us and even rebuke us. And we thank you most of all for Jesus, who is the living word. And we just ask, Father, that you would help us to delight in him for our good, for our blessedness, and for your glory. Lord, help us to delight in you for the good of the people around us so that our our neighbors, our friends, our families, our, our, our broken world can experience your goodness, your life. Lord, as we come to your table, let us remember that Jesus and Jesus alone is our true blessing, that the, the bread and the cup, which tell us of his body and blood given for us, that, that they represent our true and our ultimate and our, our never-ending source of happiness and blessing, the gospel. Lord, we thank you for all you have done for us. We pray all these things as we prepare our hearts in the name of Jesus and all God's people say, amen. As the ushers...